This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for, so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Now, regardless of how you're watching us tonight, whether you're watching us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, Mixer, Periscope, I mean, we're on basically all the platforms now, or if you happen to be listening to us on News Radio 1440 on the traditional terrestrial signal, we appreciate you giving us your valuable time. And even though it's Thursday, we're not going to slow down. We go straight for the Alabama coronavirus update with the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So you can see there, and I want to point out too, and this is a great resource for those of you who the, that have been following this whole phenomenon, that the website has actually done some really interesting updates, and you can see right there that instead of the total cases map that they used to have, they now have several options and several different data points you can see, which is fantastic because as I've been saying from the beginning of this, data is the most valuable commodity that we have in understanding exactly what we ought to do with this thing. And you can see there that they have a map now of the coronavirus cases in the state of Alabama per county per 100,000 people. Now, granted, most counties in the state of Alabama, they don't actually have 100,000 people, but this is the rate if they did adjusted for that ratio. And uh, when I say ratio, I'm, I'm not talking about her ratio from the Andy Griffith show when Opie is like, well, I've never seen a half a boy. You know, it's the same kind of thing. I realize there's not actually 100,000 people in a lot of Alabama's counties, but if you adjust it for that per 100,000 gauge, it makes it a lot better. It makes it a lot simpler to understand exactly how each county is doing compared to their relative population. And one thing that you may notice about that very quickly, if you're able to see the map, if you're not just listening to us on podcast or on the radio, if you look at that map, you will notice some really interesting trends that Montgomery now has moved into the brightest red uh, category, I guess, that they have. I'm not sure exactly what the cutoff point for that is, but if you're looking at Montgomery right now, you can see that Montgomery, Elmore County, and Otaga is slightly less red, but uh, those are all in, in big red territory. And other counties, they just have larger populations and a smaller percentage of their population has gotten it. You can see up there, Jefferson County, Shelby County, they're not way far behind. And you'll also notice that Mobile County is, is pretty up there. Baldwin County, not quite as much. And the reason that all of this import is really important is because we in Montgomery County, and this is not even counting Elmore and Otaga, which of course would be included in the river region, we are actually have, have already surpassed Baldwin County and are knocking on the door for Mobile County, which was one of the later areas that had a spike. And so the news that you've been seeing over the past couple of days, and we actually spoke about this yesterday and the day before, it's, it's overblown. And there are people that I think are, are making a far bigger deal out of it than it probably is. But this is not to say that it is not a real issue and that people in Montgomery especially should be extra careful right now, specifically because it is something that is circulating pretty quickly within Montgomery County, Elmore County, and to a lesser extent, but still a significant one, Otaga County. And this is one of the things that I've been saying since the very beginning, because I've been in favor 
of there being no government-mandated restrictions from the very beginning. But in conjunction with that belief, I also believe in regular citizens being responsible, using their liberty wisely, and taking adequate precautions. I don't think you need to overdo it, and I think that's certainly possible, and, and there are people that are certainly doing that, but it makes sense for us to be smart with this thing. And it makes sense for us to, when we're looking at the numbers and saying, okay, well, in this area of the state, it seems to be pretty hot right now. Now, granted, those are confirmed cases throughout the entirety of this, but it's important to note that, Al or that Montgomery County and the area surrounding it specifically have had a little bit rougher time of it the past week than we have been used to, and that's partially because Montgomery County had been one area where we had significantly less confirmed cases than other areas of the state up until very recently. And so just like Baldwin County, it started moving there and it started moving in the Mobile area in Mobile County, and it started quickly catching up to Jefferson several weeks ago. We're going through exactly the same thing. We're just doing it a few weeks later. And so that's what's going on here. I'm not saying ignore it, but I'm also not saying we need to panic and everybody hide your kids, hide your wife. That's not really an appropriate response either. Taking some extra precautions, being smart about this, and, and maybe in Montgomery County, people taking a few extra precautions, even more so than people in Birmingham and Huntsville and Mobile, at least for the time being, to try to slow this down and, and also to try to protect yourself from, from all of us getting sick all at one time. But what I found really interesting, and I, I'm going to go ahead and bring this up real quick just one more time to give you a, a visual illustration. One thing that I found really fascinating about this map, and I don't have a good answer, I don't have a good explanation, I am very surprised that some of our more rural counties, granted this is adjusted for population, so it, it's more likely that it would happen here than if we were just looking at raw case numbers, I'm very surprised that some of our rural counties have some of the highest rates. Now, maybe that is because they have such a low population that they just had an outburst of it in one particular part of their county. And this could be, because it is a rural county, you know, let's say the county has a population of a few hundred. Well, if you got, you know, uh, several dozen people sick with this thing at once, you could go from being one of those counties that's barely colored in there, like Coleman County, and go to being bright, bright red in a very short amount of time. That doesn't mean it's insignificant, but it does mean that it could be somewhat misleading. And so I would like some explanation. I wish that I had some more specific data on exactly why some of our more rural counties have the highest levels of or population of confirmed cases and, and some have some of the highest rates. I just find that really surprising and I, I do wish that there was somebody who was in charge of maybe data collection or something that I could ask about that. But that's something that really surprises me because the trend nationally, and this has bore out on a county-by-county county basis in other states too, and, and maybe because it's been around longer, it's just now starting to spread to those. But the trend nationally has been the more rural an area, area is, the more, the, the more densely populated it is, 
that it's going to be more likely to have a higher rate of its population with confirmed cases. And the more rural an area is, the less likely it is to have a very high rate of people within that jurisdiction having the novel coronavirus. So that seems odd. It seems at odds with what we know about this thing so far. So I think that that's something that's going to need a little more investigation. Remember, this is the first day that Alabama Department of Public Health has had that as an option. This is my first chance getting to look at it. And so it's going to take a little time to digest this and watch it over a period of days and try to figure out exactly what that means for us. But it is important to note because you can look at that map and see all the bright red parts and go, ooh, that's, that's super scary. It's important to note that all of those rubrics, those measures, are in comparison to other Alabama counties. We're not dealing with a map that compares Alabama to every county in every other state. So that bright, bright red can be super scary to somebody that doesn't understand it in the context of it's bad compared to other Alabama counties. Because if you're looking at how Alabama is doing as a state overall, and I know that we typically do a little bit deeper dive into this, but just to make this point, I'm going to do one that's a little bit more shallow. Alabama is still 26th in the entire country with a case rate of 271 confirmed cases per 100,000 in the country. So we're still middle of the pack. And so, yeah, those big bright red counties may look super scary, but we ain't New York, we ain't New Jersey, and we're not going to be anytime soon. This is compared to other places in Alabama. And with a rate of 271 per 100,000, that's nothing even coming close to the level of infection rates that people were predicting even with mitigation early on in the models, nor is it anything that would come really even close to overwhelming our healthcare system within the state. And so that's an important piece of context you do need to understand while looking at this thing. Another one that might help you a little bit is that we are currently 25th in deaths per 100,000. So adjusted for our population, we're literally middle of the pack. I mean, right smack dab in the middle. So there's half the states doing better than us, half the states doing worse than us. Believe me, I, I wish that we were doing better on that scale, but ultimately that's, that's where we are. So we have 20, we're 25th in deaths per 100,000, and that rate is 10.8. Now, here's what I, I want to do to also give you some, uh, some context into what all this means, what these numbers look like. 10.8 out of 100,000 it's a big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it's statistically insignificant, but to understand exactly how serious this virus has been thus far, and remember that with the exception of maybe the Montgomery area, the rest of the state already hit its peak and, and started to level off. But if you're looking at the state of Alabama as a whole and looking specifically at our death rate and how many people we have, remember that the state of Alabama has 4888 million people, which means that if we have lost 529, as we just saw in the the statistic there from the Alabama Department of Public Health, if we have lost 529 Alabamians to the coronavirus, that of course is tragic. That's a terrible thing to have to endure. Losing even one life to this thing is horrible. I'd, I'd hate to lose my fellow Alabamians to any cause of death. However, if you're looking at it, That means that compared to our state population, 
Alabama has lost 0.0001% of Alabama's population. Again, one death is too many. I, I get that. But the idea that we're dealing with something that is going to terminate a large portion of our population is utterly ridiculous. Remember that we're literally middle of the pack when it comes to death rate adjusted for population, which means that we're right at average. And even in our state, we have one ten thousandth of a percent of our population succumbing to this disease. It is an infinitesimally small number. Now, if you are a person that is at high risk, of course you should take precautions. Of course you should take this seriously, because that fatality rate does climb significantly if you're over a certain age, if you have uh, pre pre-existing conditions like I do. I have lung problems, and so that's something that, of course, I do take very seriously. That I'm just saying, especially for the average Alabamian, even if you're including the people with those fatality, uh, with with those fatality, um, with those high fatality rates that have those pre-existing conditions, even if you're including all of Alabamians, it's still one ten thousandth of a percent of a chance that you're going to die from this thing. And if you don't have any pre-existing conditions, it's practically non-existent. It's so small. And so I think that that really does help us get a better look at exactly, at exactly how serious this is and what our reaction ought to be to this. Now, let's go ahead and look at the confirmed cases. So, these are the confirmed cases in the state of Alabama. These are the new cases per day. This isn't total. And you'll notice that today we had a really big spike. In fact, the biggest spike that we have ever had. We broke 500, which we've never done in a single day in the state of Alabama. This is a plus 544 since yesterday. Now, the fact that it is the single biggest increase to date is significant, but like I said, this is something that is to be expected. When you start opening up a state, you are going to see an increase in cases. That not only makes common sense, it also is true based on the data that we have seen. But if our neighbors like Georgia are any teacher to this, and, and also Florida, which is another bordering state, that what we're going to see is we're going to see a spike in cases followed by a decrease in cases. That's probably what's going to happen within the next few days. So, going to go up, and then going to start dropping down. And by the way, it is more important that even if we look at cases, even if we have cases skyrocketing, as long as our hospitalization rates are remaining manageable and our death rates are not exploding, then having more cases is actually really, really good because that means more people are likely to get the virus and develop an immunity to it. Because with the most recent research that we've done looking at this thing, it seems as though that once you get the coronavirus, you are very unlikely to get recontaminated with it. We, we don't really have a lot of data on this yet, obviously, because it's a brand new virus. But if we can go ahead and get people more people that uh, have antibodies to this thing, what that means is when wave number two of this thing hits, which it, it very well could in the fall, that's a very real possibility. 
But if wave number two of this thing hits, then there are already people that already have antibodies. Now, maybe that winds up being very successful. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the body can't stay immune to this thing or produce those antibodies for an extended period of time. Maybe it winds up being like the flu, where there are different strains of it, different mutations every year. And because that happens, we are not able to just basically get it once and then we're done. We'd have to get it once every season, which is the reason that we have the flu shot. We don't know that yet, but that's something that we, we need to be aware of that an increase in cases as long as our hospitalizations and deaths do not increase as a part of that, or at least past a certain point, even if they do increase, as long as we don't overwhelm the system, then that's not necessarily something that's going to be too much for us to handle. That that is actually, looking at it from the macro level, a really good thing. So let's go ahead and look at how Alabama is doing on testing. So if you'll look at the testing here, you'll see that we have had a slight drop-off from yesterday because yesterday we had almost 10,000 tests in one day. So we were doing extremely well yesterday, and we've had a bit of a drop-off here, but still significantly more than we had done for the three days prior. And so it looks like we have leveled off somewhat and we're getting back to a comfortable groove with the new test being somewhere in the five to 6,000 range every day. I think that that's a pretty good number, a pretty good rubric. Now, maybe the reason our testing is increasing is because more people are feeling sick. They're feeling symptomatic. They actually are getting the coronavirus and that's why we're seeing this. Uh, maybe that's true. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say at this point, but uh, I do want you to note that if you just saw on that on that chart, you notice that there was a really big spike in testing yesterday, almost 10,000. We were at like 9,700 something. So almost 10,000 tests. And then we saw a giant jump in confirmed cases today. That's probably not a coincidence. Usually if we have a really big testing one day, we have a really big jump in cases the next day. And we have no idea how many of those cases are asymptomatic and how many are going to face complications. We can guess based on statistics of the past, but the data is so limited that it's not a great predictor. But nonetheless, again, this goes back to what I was saying. The, the increase in testing, the increase in cases isn't necessarily a bad thing. So let's go ahead and take a look at our hospitalizations. Now, the hospitalizations in the state of Alabama up a little bit today, but more or less consistent with what we've been saying, still above average though. And that's to be noted, we did have an increase of 48 today. Uh, it is, you know, there's at least a decent chance with the increase in cases that that hospitalization rate is likely to get worse. Just preparing all for that, that's a very likely outcome, but we're still leagues and leagues below where we would have to be to actually overwhelm our healthcare system. Now, that's looking at Alabama as a whole. It is possible, possible, that we could see an increase that is so drastic in the Montgomery re region that we do have a shortage of ICU beds. But as I was talking about yesterday, you can go back and watch my analysis. What Mayor Stephen Reed was saying about there being a, a kind of crisis going on with us running out of ICU beds, that was overblown a little bit. Uh, not to say that it was completely overblown, but it was it was somewhat misleading if you don't understand the fact that, you know, with things like having Birmingham nearby and having Opelika nearby, these are really not things that we should be panicking about. Now, what would be something to at least start being concerned about 
is if we were running out of ventilators in all of our major cities in Alabama and the state as a whole was seeing a surge all at the same time. But pretty much every other major city in Alabama has already hit that spike. Madison County in Huntsville, they hit theirs a long time ago. Jefferson County, same thing. Mobile hit its a little later, but we would be more likely to go to Birmingham or the hospital at Opelika than we would there anyway. Uh, even Tuscaloosa, theirs cooled down. They're not as bad as Mobile County now if you're looking at population. So really, the idea that this is going to be something that's going to be a major inconvenience, it's a little bit overblown. Now, I will say this, though. My friend and colleague, Kevin Elkins, who also appears on News Radio 1440 on Decisions, he does the morning show, he was talking today, uh, floating an idea about the Army deploying if there, there is some kind of overspill from the ICU units and there really is a need for ventilators, there is a need for bed space, that's very unlikely. Alabama actually has pretty good bed-to-population ratio when it comes to hospitals. If that were to happen, theoretically, and it doesn't appear as though, based on the numbers, we're anywhere near the point where we would need something like this, because not only do we have adequate capacity within the city and within the region right now, we also have a capacity in Birmingham and Opelika, like I was saying. But just in case, if something like that were to happen to where our healthcare system would be overwhelmed, he was floating the idea of the army coming in and setting up mass units and being hospitalized in tents. That's a possibility. And you may remember that the army had sent in aircraft carriers, the I believe it was the USS Comfort, that went to New York I know that there was one that went to New York and one that went to L.A., and they wound up needing neither one of them. And those are the hot spots that are way, way, way worse than anything going on in Montgomery, anything going on in Alabama. And so I think that we're so far from that that it's you know really unnecessary to make plans like that. But if it were to happen, it's a pretty good idea. If we ever did get to that point, it would make sense. Now, my two big questions would be, First, would the Army be in charge of that or the National Guard? Because it seems to me like it would make more sense for the National Guard to do that, especially since the National Guard basically serves at the pleasure of the governor instead of the president. It's something that's a little bit more localized. They're a little bit more used to handling domestic stuff. The military tends to handle overseas operations, that kind of thing. Now, granted, I'm saying this is an outsider, never served in the military so I, I don't know a lot of those inner workings or why that might or might not be a good idea, but just based on my initial look at what this would look like, I think that that would be the case. Second part of this is, again, we have so much capacity from Birmingham and Opelika and Tuscaloosa who are now not dealing with the virus very much. UAB is actually reported being significantly under their normal capacity because of everything that was going on. Now that they've reinstated elective operations, maybe they're a little bit closer to capacity than they were beforehand. I would imagine that is the case. But the point is, there's no reason to think that far ahead in the sense that we it's it's not a bad idea to keep in your hip pocket, but we're nowhere near levels where we would actually need something like that. And uh, finally, let's go ahead and look at coronavirus deaths. You can see there, when we're looking at deaths, those are actually on a downward trend, even from the mediocre starting point that they had earlier this week, starting out the week at 15, and had a really, really big lull 
over the weekend when it comes to deaths. That's kind of to be expected. Deaths are always down over the weekend. But that's where we stand right now with the COVID-19 deaths. So there's a, a couple takeaways we should really look at here. If everything else is going up and, and we've got cases, testing going up, hospitalizations above average, and our deaths are going down, there's a couple ways to read that. First of all, that you know we're, we're heading in the right direction in the sense that we may be getting more overall cases, but we're not getting more deaths. I think that that's incorrect because I think what's going to happen is we're going to see an increase in deaths as well, but because that's a lagging statistic we're not going to see deaths resulting from these big spikes probably until about at least Wednesday or Thursday of next week. Could be wrong on that. That's a distinct possibility. But that's what I'm predicting is going to happen right now. And so it's great that it's down. It's great that we're not seeing as many people lose their lives at this thing, that we have more Alabamians surviving this thing. But... I'm just saying that we need to prepare ourselves for the fact that the increase in, in cases probably means there is an increase in deaths on the way. We'll just have to keep our eyes on that one. So overall, it's still looking good for now. We'll have to see where it is in a week, especially in regards to the deaths and, and sort of see where we go from there. There is actually some news on the shutdowns and what the government is doing in response to this virus. In fact, if you were watching today, Meemaw had another press conference. So Meemaw K has loosened the restrictions once again. You, you may recall that the Safer at Home Alabama orders that she issued a couple weeks ago, they actually expire tomorrow. So in order to give people a heads up on what is coming down the pipe, she went ahead and talked about the restrictions and exactly what new form those would take because she could have, she, there were several different options. She could have just said, uh, we're going to continue to extend those restrictions until a further date. We're going to do away with them entirely. We're going to loosen them or we're going to strict, uh, make them a little bit more strict. So her new safer at home orders that, that did expire tomorrow are going to be replaced. We're still technically under basically the new safer at home orders. I think the labels are dumb. They're hard to keep up with. They don't really inform you. I, I don't know. I just, I think that there needs to be a different naming system. I'm not a PR guy. I'm not sure exactly what that should have been, but the new orders and, and what they change about what was currently going on is that now schools, daycare centers, summer camps, and entertainment venues can reopen. So I'm going to talk about these in, in two different lights because I think they're two very different things. Now, I'll say this from the onset, and this is not going to surprise anybody. I have thought the entirety of this time that what we should be doing is not having any government restrictions. Now, schools are a little different because schools are an actual function of the government. They're the ones that decide whether they stay open or not. But as far as things like private schools, private universities, daycares, summer camps, that should have been entirely up to the people and the organizations running them. The government should have never had any say in those from the beginning, no matter what they thought was going to happen, even if they, they were seeing evidence that the healthcare system was being overrun. Nothing, and I repeat, nothing gives them the right to force a private business or a private organization to shut down, period. But let's ignore that for just a second. It makes sense. 
that in these particular orders, schools, daycare centers, and summer camps would open up because the more we are learning about the virus, the more new information that we have coming in, the more that we learn that this thing does not affect children virtually at all. The mortality rate, we were looking at some states to compare to the other day. The mortality rate in Pennsylvania for people under 18 is they literally have had one person in the entire state of Pennsylvania under the age of 18 to succumb to COVID-19. And the rate for people between the ages of 18 and 35, they're not zero, but they're virtually zero. I mean, they've had a few cases, but it's an infinitesimally small portion of the population. Age is the single biggest determining factor as to whether or not this virus is deadly or not. That's just the way that it is. That's what everything we have learned about this virus tells us. And another thing that we have learned, and this is new information, we've, we've kind of had that information pretty much the whole time. But the new information that we have out now is that we're not even sure that kids can spread the thing. Because based on some recent findings, we're not really even sure that a kid can spread it because that was always the argument, right? The argument for closing down things like schools has always been well, we're not worried about the kids. What we're worried about is the kids going home to grandma and grandpa and spreading it to them. Legitimate concern. And at a time where we did not have any evidence to the contrary, it was safer to assume that that was a possibility. And even though I, I don't think that the government should, again, close a private school or a private organization, it made sense to me that the government, because of that concern, would shut down public schools at the time. But now we have new information, and we have yet to be able to prove that kids can spread this thing. Yeah, it, it stands to reason that they do, but considering all the new information that we have, the studies that have been done, that we, we can't even determine whether or not asymptomatic people are even contagious with this thing, we can't determine whether or not kids have spread it, there has yet to be a confirmed case of a child spreading this thing to an older American thus far. Maybe it's happened, maybe we just don't know about it, but so far we can't track that down. And so, really the kids may be the safest ones, and especially when you're talking about summer camp, one especially where a lot of the activities are done outside, you're out in the sun, it's, it's the best disinfectant, this thing can't li can't, literally cannot live for more than about a minute and a half in direct sunlight, even if all the other conditions are right, even if it happens to be suspended in saliva, it still can't survive in direct sunlight for more than about 90 seconds at the absolute max. And so it makes perfect sense for things like summer camps to be open. Entertainment venues, again, I don't think that they should have shut down any entertainment venues. I think that that's a liberty issue. But even if you ignore that for a second, I'm not sure that opening up entertainment venues is going to do much of anything. And again, this goes back to what I've been preaching the entire time, that this is ultimately determined based on what the people decide to do, not what the government tells them to do. Because I was looking at a poll that was taken on a group. I want to say this group was Reopen Alabama. So it's very obviously a skewed poll. It is a poll specifically taken in a group 
primarily of people that are in favor of reopening the state. So this is by no means a scientific uh, observation of the entirety of the, uh, the Alabama population. It is a specific look at a subsection of people that want the state to be legally reopened. And you know what the results were when they asked whether or not those people would feel comfortable or that they would take their own family to an entertainment venue, like a concert, like a theater, like a sporting event? Granted, it was a lot closer than it probably would be if you had taken a sampling of the entire population of Alabama, but 52% of the people that responded in that group said, no, we're not doing that, not yet, we're not comfortable with that. So again, I'm, I'm glad that they're open from a liberty standpoint, but even if they're open, people aren't going to go to them yet, at least not in big numbers or numbers enough to make a difference. Because even the group of people that are, are most fervent about reopening, the majority of them said, we're, we're going to hold off on that for a little while. Let the people of Alabama make those decisions. They are not reckless. They don't want to hurt themselves or hurt their families or potentially hurt a loved one that is at high risk. They're going to make wise, prudent decisions on their own. Some of them aren't. I know that. That's part of the price of liberty. But ultimately, the ones that do wind up being reckless are probably only going to wind up hurting themselves in the long run anyway. So it really does make more sense to err on the side of liberty as opposed to the side of caution when it comes to government mandates. And another thing that was really odd here is that presumably nightclubs, bowling alleys, and theaters are still closed. Entertainment venues, though, are not. I doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why a theater would be closed when a concert hall would be open. I, I Maybe I don't understand the legislation. Maybe somebody can explain that to me. I don't know, but that doesn't really make any sense to me. But the economic impact is definitely real because they are already predicting that the state of Alabama, we're talking about the government here, not the, the entire state economy, that the state of Alabama in taxation alone is going to lose about $1 billion of revenue. Now, that's a substantial loss. That the general budget will be able to spend about a billion dollars less because of all the tax revenue that they have lost in this period. So it's hitting the government hard. It's hitting the economy as a whole hard because remember, those revenues are based off of the production of its citizens. So if that revenue is down, that means the production of its citizens is significantly down, which, you know, where there were there was a large plurality of the population that was told they had to sit at home for two months, so that's really no surprise. But that's where we are right now. There was one other thing that I wanted to bring up today that we'll go ahead and take a look at real quick. You can see here there was a headline covering the new orders by Governor Ivey, and you can see there this is ABC 3340. That is a news station out of Birmingham covering this. And the headline is, Governor Ivey loosens restrictions in new order despite rise in coronavirus cases. And this is the headline, of course, that our completely unbiased, our completely objective news organizations within the state of Alabama has put forward. Now, here's why that's really important, because I even had some people and, and you know, people I like, people that I respect, people who have pretty sharp political opinions say, Caleb, why are you taking an issue with that one? That one's just stating the facts. 
Technically, yes, it is. There is nothing inside that headline that is non-factual. But here's the important thing to understand, and this is why media bias can be so detrimental. The big outrageous examples of there being an insane level of media bias is, of course, important. And it's, of course, important that we talk about those things. For example, talking about how the media was all over the Roy Moore story or the Brett Kavanaugh story on day one and couldn't wait to try to get all of the salacious rumors that had no basis in truth out there when it came to men like Brett Kavanaugh and Roy Moore out as soon as possible and literally waited 35 days and dozens of media appearances before anybody even dared to ask Joe Biden, hey, what's the deal with these, with these allegations against you? Big, giant, obvious uh, cases of media bias like that are, of course, important. But I think the far more deadly ones are the subtle ones. Because you understand by using the word despite in that headline, they are trying to drum up a specific assumption by the reader by having them read that sentence as though it's factually accurate. And it is factually accurate. Governor Ivey is loosening the restrictions. That is true. Coronavirus cases are on the rise. Also true. But you do realize that headline would technically still be true even if we had more, one more coronavirus case today. If we had one more coronavirus case today and had zero yesterday and zero the day before, and this thing was pretty much over, that headline would still technically be true. That as the coronavirus cases were increasing, KIV decided to loosen the restrictions. But you understand how misleading that would be? Now, in our case... The case we, we've had the single biggest day of gains in, in a uh, sorry biggest single day gains of coronavirus cases today that, that four hundred and or sorry five hundred and forty four new cases today so you could see how you could say well okay but that that part's not misleading but by saying despite they're drumming up the idea that the action or the reaction from Governor Ivy is not the appropriate reaction. By saying despite the new cases of coronavirus going up, they are insinuating that her course of action is wrong and that the correct action or the action that she ought to take is not that. Now, if the same headline read, and by the way, the content of the article itself is pretty much fine. There's only one or two sentences I even take issue with. The, the content of the article is good, but the headline sets the table for the article and it sets the reader up to believe that those actions are wrong. And it also goes back to the whole moving the goalpost thing, that they are assuming that just because the cases are increasing, that that is a bad idea, or that's not supposed to happen when we open it up, which is not true, and that's never what, what the plan was. It was always to flatten the curve, and we knew that when we opened it back up, of course the cases were going to increase. We knew that from the very beginning. But anyway... By insinuating that, they have very subtly taken the average reader, the person that you know, may not know all of those details, and set it up to put out this message that what KIV is doing is incorrect, that her actions do not accurately reflect what should be done in this situation. If that same headline had read, Governor Ivy uh, loosens restrictions, that would have been the best version. I would have even taken, even though I think they're still trying to insinuate something, Governor Ivey loosens restrictions 
as coronavirus cases increase. I still take a little bit of issue with that because it feels like it's leading the reader somewhere. But ultimately, I think that that is still an accurate one. And I still would say that that is one that you could look at and go, all right, well, at least it's factually accurate. It's not assuming anything or trying to get the reader to assume anything as they're reading the article. That's the difference in subtle bias from the media. And the reason that it's far more dangerous is because it's so subtle that people don't realize they're being led in a certain direction. Even, like I said, people that I respect, people that pay a lot of attention to the news, people that are far more informed than the average person looked at that headline and went, I don't see the problem. Subtle media bias is the most dangerous one because it does not notify people that they are being led. It's harder for them to understand that they're being led to understand and interpret the news in a certain direction. And that's the problem with media bias as a whole. It's trying to influence as opposed to inform. Now me, I'm an opinion guy. I'm an influencer. I'm trying to influence you. I'm very open about that. That is something that is out in the open for you to understand. But with the news, who is supposed to be unbiased, they pretend and wear that mantle of objective journalism. And then while you're not looking, try to subtly sneak in influencing your ideas on what should or should not happen. That's the kind of media bias that is the most dangerous. It may not be the most uh, outrageous, but it's definitely the most dangerous. All right, well, I had a couple other stories that I was going to go to, but the thing is, it's 7 o'clock, I got to get to a Bible study. Uh, They're already expecting me, and I'm the one hosting the meeting, so I got to get the heck out of here. We will see you next week, Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.